Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here. We thank you for everyone that's here in the room. We ask that you please would bless our time here and that you would please give us your spirit, direct us, and watch over us. And thank you for being able to talk about your wonderful creation and all the wonderful things you do for us. We pray asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay, so some main facts. I guess I can move this a little bit over. Some main facts to think about when we're talking about IPM and introducing biological controls. Uh, money. That's what it comes down to. As a grower, you have all these expenses, and you got to keep those down. So it's, it's really sometimes it's not worth spending the money on a large... Well, let's just put it, I'll put it this way. It's not practical to buy, to spend a lot of money buying a whole bunch of biologicals to control, to try to control a certain pest. And usually this is because once the numbers are out of control, again, it goes back to a numbers game, um, you're not going to win. You're going to lose anyway. So if you were to try to overdo it, you'd have to buy so much, it just wouldn't be practical. So again, IPM is mostly before there's a problem. You want to do it before you have an infestation. Uh, so again, you got to take an approach that makes financial sense for your growing system and your farms. You can't just do whatever you wish. Um, or, I mean, unless you just have infinite funds, but most of us don't do that. Uh, you have to purchase the correct organism, right, the correct biological for the correct target pest. So sometimes people get them confused and they think that, well, oh, this mite's supposed to do whatever, or this you know, wasp is supposed to parasitize a certain aphid. So you got to identify your pest first to know your problem. Figure that problem out first, and then you'll know what organism to introduce, or maybe not an organism, maybe you have to go to some spray. But even if you're going to spray, you have to identify the pest. Because if you don't know what your pest is, you don't, you know, you're just, you're wasting money. Because sprays aren't free either. They cost money. They get expensive too. So we, we have to identify your pest. And proper pest identification goes back into having you know, the right lens, you know, knowing, going out and scouting, looking for it, and understanding the damage. Um, and sometimes you have to you know, go out to an extension service or a consultant or somebody else to help you figure out what that pest is. But <coughs> whatever you have to do, identify the pest. That's the important key point. Um, so again, the, organisms must, the organism must be at the right place at the right time. And they must be applied, you must apply them immediately upon receiving them. So when you order these biologicals from any of these companies, you have to apply them right away. They don't have much of a shelf life. Some of them have to be refrigerated, some of them don't, but they do need to be applied within a day or two, and preferably the day that they arrive. Because when, they, when you get them, they've already spent a couple of days uh, in freight being moved from somewhere to somewhere. And by the time they come to you, well, actually, the way the industry goes, you, a lot of the stuff is made in different parts of the country because they breed well there. So, you know, you can get them, you can get them from Spain, you can get them from Africa, you can get them from the Netherlands, they can come from Mexico. You don't know where they're coming from, but they got to fly. They fly a whole <coughs> bunch of these organisms off to some particular area in the United States. And then from there, they get shipped to some distribution place and then come to you. So they've been literally around the world sometimes before they come to you. So it's a good idea to you put them out as soon as you get them. Um, we have to check for predation and compatibility with other bios that you, uh, you either you're about to apply or you're hoping to apply. So an example of this is uh, Amblyssia sandersoni. It's a predatory mite, uh, but it consumes any mite. So 
it's, it's not a very hungry one, so it hunts somewhat slowly, but it's a great mite for preventative because it can also consume the pollen of the flowers. So it doesn't have to have the pests there in order to survive. And what's great about it is that you can keep this organism out in your crop and uh, you, know, you don't have to worry about whether or not it's eating. It's gonna find something to eat and it'll survive. And then when the pest does arrive, it's already there. So it helps to slow it down, but it usually won't win the race. In other words, it doesn't reproduce faster than the pest. So if you're dealing with spider mites, spider mites will outnumber Andersoni any day, any day. So you can't expect to control them completely, but you can expect Andersoni to suppress it to the point where it's not likely to become as much of a problem as quickly. So you, at least it's slowing it down. You'll have to turn to other organisms to suppress it. Though some might argue that and say, no, you can control it because there is a lot of, in IPM, there's a lot of opinions. <laughs> it's what you'll find. You, know, you, you ask one guy something, he'll tell you one thing, and then somebody will tell you something else. But in practice is where you're really going to see what's going to work and what's not going to work. Um, so here's some of the predatory mites I wanted to get into. Amblyssia swarsky, Amblyssia andersoni, Amblyssia californicus, Amblyssia cucumerus, and Persimilis, and uh, Phytocilius persimilis. These are five mites that are very readily available. You can buy them in multiple different places and apply them where you are. So, <clears throat> I mentioned earlier Andersoni, and you see Andersoni will consume all the other four. So if you're releasing the other four for some reason, and then you want to come and release Andersoni, uh, there's a pretty good chance if there's nothing else to eat, they're going to eat these other mites. So you're, <laughs> you're buying a mite to feed mites that doesn't, not too <laughs> smart. So you just, you got to make sure that, you know, what you're doing is logical. And this is why I say the Andersoni should be introduced early and then if you do develop a problem, well, then you can come in with one of the other mites. But if you don't develop a problem, then you don't buy anything. You just leave it alone. All right. So let's talk about Amblyssia Swarsky here. Swarsky is um, a great mite for controlling thrips and whiteflies. Uh, this is the actual picture on the top right. That's the actual mite. And I believe what he is consuming is a thrip a young thrip larva. This is how they actually work, uh, or this is what they actually do on the surface of your crop, right? And this picture right here is whitefly. Some of you may not be familiar with whitefly is, but here's a, a mature whitefly, and then you see these eggs. So the uh, Swarovski, really, they love to eat eggs. They don't, love the, they don't like the adults so much. So what you're doing is you're releasing these mites to run around the surface of the crop to consume eggs. Uh, a whitefly life cycle, oh, I forgot to put that in there. I'm sorry, I didn't put that in my slide. I wanted to put the life cycle of Swarovski, but I think it's something like uh, 10 days or so from egg to adult, 10 to 15 days. So it's, it's, it's slower than whitefly. Whiteflies, uh, in six to 10 days from, the, from when they're hatched, they're already ready, uh, sexually mature. So in other words, this organism in six to 10 days of this particular fly is ready to produce or to lay eggs six to ten days right six to ten days after it was born it is so fast this is why i'm telling you these problems multiply quickly so i mentioned in the last hour about god's army that is insane and this isn't even the fastest aphids got that beat aphids are born pregnant <laughs> yes for the asexual reproduction they're born pregnant for sexual reproduction they're not but for asexual 
They're born and they're already ready to throw another litter out. And that's ready to throw another one out because it's asexual. It doesn't require males. Mm -hmm. So to get ahead of these numbers is impressive. That's why I, say, that's why I go back to Joel chapter 2. It's like, wow, this is really God's army here. It reproduces quickly. But um, so one of the things I know about Swarovski, uh, it's great for managing thrips, but with mites, they don't, not all mites can go on all crops. And I know from one of the things I can tell you from experience is Swarovski doesn't really like to walk on tomato leaves. The trichomes of the leaves are so high. So you realize this is a tiny little mite. You're looking at this picture right here at probably, I'd say 20x, maybe 25x amplification, right? And then of course it's amplified even more because it's up here on this screen. But if we were to try to amplify something, I got a one liter bottle of water here and then I got a regular marker, right? So imagine these are the trichomes on a leaf of a tomato plant. It's something like this, and you got a whole bunch of them on the leaf, right? And then you got a tiny little mite about this big trying to walk on it. It, it can't. You see that? Yeah. Thrips, they'll just fly from leaf to leaf, and they'll leave their eggs. The eggs will hatch, they'll consume the leaf matter, then they'll you know, pupate, <coughs> come back up to adult, etc. So for Swarovski to try to walk on a tomato leaf, it's pretty tough. So you don't use Swarovski in You really don't want to use Swarovskis on tomatoes. <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. And, I'm, and that's why. They do not walk on the crop very well. So it's not necessarily the best way to manage them. You can put them on there, but you're not going to have great success. You're mostly just wasting your money. Uh, and that was just an example of um, how that works. So Amblyseus cucumeris, this is a, another one, is a, a predator of um, thrips. So releasing cucumeris and Swarovski in sachets for the management of thrips and white flies, as well as, um, see, I think I'm forgetting one here. That they don't, they might dine on spider mites, but not, they're not too, they don't really prefer it, you know? They prefer thrips and, uh, and uh, white flies. And I think actually what they'll do, they'll go after the egg of the spider mite, but they don't, they don't prefer it. Uh, yeah, so this right here on the thrips, we're probably, thrips are much larger actually. Thrips you can see with the naked eye and they're probably like oh, from the head here of the antenna to the tail in the back here, it's probably like five millimeters, maybe four, three at the smallest. They're, they're real small, but what the thrips do is that they'll go into the, uh, the, the, they like to suck and get the sap out of the plant, but what their biggest problem is that they go into the flower and they, uh, they start sucking that nectar, they start penetrating it, and what happens is that they, they form the pistil and, and the ovaries, and when that fruit ripens, it's ugly. It's crooked, your cucumbers are crooked, uh, your tomatoes can be crooked, uh, just deformed, and they're, they're just not good for market. And that's what thrips do. So for managing thrips, uh, these are two different mites. Uh, Swarovski and Cucumerus will work, and they work together. They're very compatible. So management of uh, Swarovski, uh, sorry, management of thrips in uh, flowers as well as uh, cucumbers and watermelons and those other crops. Let's see. You don't really see them too much in strawberries, but you could do it in strawberries. The best thing to do is sachets, and you could purchase sachets, and these sachets are just tiny little, maybe uh, oh, I don't know three by three inch square inside is a bunch of eggs with some food those eggs will hatch and then um and actually it's a it's a it's a like a little uh, micro 
environment inside these little sachets, little bags you can hang. And there's enough food inside of there, I'm sorry, there's enough food inside of there for, for multiple generations. And you'll get about six to eight weeks of, um, of eggs hatching. So you have living organisms in there, they'll breed and they'll continue to consume that food. And then as they breed, young uh, mites are born, which will just leave the sachet and they'll start crawling on the plants. So these sachets are really nice because you can put them on your crop and they'll be there for at least six to eight weeks. And they're pretty cheap too. They're, 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 I don't know, I, don't know. I, I could give you an example of what they cost in 2018. So say I wanted to man, uh, manage thrips with Ambusius cucumerus and I wanted to buy sachets um, with hooks. I mean, I, I, you get 500 sachets, 500 would do like half an acre. I don't know how big All your production is. That's a lot. Anyway, it's a, well, back in the days of 66, it's probably like $75 today, maybe a hundred. So for a hundred bucks, you get 500 sachets. That's pretty cheap. It's pretty cheap to manage thrips and, uh, and white flies. Uh, and that was, yeah, that was actually, that was, that was Swarovski. I'm sorry. Swarovski is the cheapest one. No, that was cucumerous. Uh, let's see here's Swarovski down here. You can get the, uh, where is it? I know I got the sachets in here somewhere. You can get them actually as adults as well in a bottle where they're ready to go and you spray them on your crop. You just sprinkle it on your crop and uh, you get 250 milliliters or all the way up to 500 milliliters, which has 2000 mites inside of it. And that's what, 150 bucks maybe, 175 probably if you were to get it now. Uh, let's see, here's another one. This is, um, Eremoceros eremicus and Mundus. These are two different, uh, they're actually two different mites. And um, I'm sorry, not mites. They're two different uh, parasitoids. I wanted to talk about this one because we're talking about white flies, but this is not a mite. This is actually a parasitic wasp. However, there's two different varieties and you, tend, you can buy them together. You can buy them separate. And the reason why they put them together is because they go after different thrips. Not all thrips are the same. So some of these are species specific. And if you don't really know what thrips you have, you only know you have thrips. It's good to get the actual Aramicus and Mundus together because you know you're going to get them. You don't have to sit there and identify it, right? So this is one of the reasons sometimes people have both. If you got both, it's a good idea to, to manage them that, that way as well. But the parasitic wasps, they're born, they start hunting, they look for it, they'll parasitize the eggs, and um, more generations will come out, right? So uh, let's see here. In these particular examples, both of these, uh, actually the... Aramicus lays 800 to 250 eggs during its 10 to 16 day life cycle. And these guys are laying eggs at uh, six days, right? Six to 10 days, they start laying eggs. And I think they're laying something like uh, five to 10 eggs a day or something like that is what thrips do. Five to 10 eggs a day. So we're looking at the reproductive capacity of a whitefly compared to the reproductive capacity of the wasp. And the white fly will outnumber the wasp. The undesired pest almost always, that's a general rule of thumb. The undesired pest almost always can outreproduce whatever pest we have in our IPM program, right? So that's why it's so critical that you introduce them early and you keep those numbers right. And this is why I say it's a numbers game. Numbers, numbers, numbers. Because if you cannot keep up with this, if, you're, if you don't have an IPM program that is keeping up with the reproductive rate of whatever your target pest is, like white flies or spider mites or aphids, um, you're going to lose the battle. 
They're going to outnumber whatever uh, organisms, you have, bios you have out there, and eventually take over your crop. So, so it's no, these are not mites. These are these are uh, a predatory. I'm uh, sorry, um, parasitic wasps. Basically, for white fly control. Or? Uh, for white fly, yes, largely for white fly. And uh, these work by, and I believe I mentioned they work by parasitizing the eggs. And actually, mm -hmm. all right. So as you were talking about numbers, when you're making your purchase, you're assessing where I'm at on my, my pest infestation in order to match that. Uh, again, so when purchasing, uh, what you need to start with is what do you think you have? What pest do you either know you have or you think you're going to have? If your neighbor farm tells you, hey, I got, um, I got white flies or, or John down the road, he's got white fly problems. You should sit there and say, ooh, well, I better put out something for white flies because if he's just down the road and he has that problem, chances are they're coming your way. So it's good to do the preventative application before you have the problem. But if you have this huge infestation, you're probably not going to manage it with bio. It's too late. But if you're out scouting, if and you, start and you see, see them, you have to account for the reproductive rate of the predator of the uh, target. Yes. In applying your your predator rates in order to bring that under control. Yeah. So you you have to bring it under control by first off, if you find them, right? So say you scout something and it's the first time you've ever seen you've never had this <coughs> pest there before. Say something like spider mites. You find spider mites. Uh, so you need to figure out, well, how much do I have? Well, if you have just a small little colony on one plant back in a corner somewhere, some people will say, well, I'll rip this out, you know, I'll burn it or whatever. But you can't, you'll never really get rid of them. <laughs> They're going to come back, right? So you have to think about, okay, well, if I, took, if I took care of that particular plant by ripping it out, burning it, or whatever you did, maybe you spray it. Sometimes growers, what most growers will do is they, they identify in their, in their um, Scouting, somebody that's scouting will find a particular pest, and what they do, they'll spot spray that area with whatever knockdown spray they have for that pest. And then once you do that, then you apply the biologicals as a preventative because you know it's there, and you concentrate a good chunk of that, of that purchase in that area where you found them, where you just sprayed, because you, the sprays will never kill 100% of the target pest. So that's the best way to approach that problem. All right, so then... Let's see, Incarcia formosa is another one, uh, let's, uh, parasitic wasp, and they live for about 12 days and can lay about 59 eggs during that time. So that's, this, is, um, this is a really good preventative, but this will never be curative. Never. Incarcia formosa should never be used as curative because it will not knock any kind of infestation down. It will only, at best, just prevent. Laying 59 eggs in its entire lifetime, it's not very, you know, it just doesn't reproduce that great. It doesn't. It really doesn't. And um, this one, I believe, is also for thrips and aphids. No, thrips. Oh, that's white fly. I'm sorry. Yeah. That is a white fly. That's white fly. Uh, Incarcia formosa is used for the control of white flies uh, as a preventative, not as a treatment. 
So uh, now we go to Amblisius Swarsky. I, I, I spoke, I'm sorry, Amblisius Andersoni. I spoke about this one a little bit earlier. This is a mite predator. And I know they say that this one can um, consume uh, russet mites, but I've, only, I've heard that it's only marginally effective. And in my experience, it, it wasn't that great. But again, it goes back to the fact that I don't believe Amblisius Andersoni can really walk on tomatoes very well. It might be able to walk on tobacco or cannabis or, um, I think it can do some of the peppers, but not tomatoes. It doesn't really like walking on tomatoes. Much uh, for tomatoes. Not much, no, not much uh, with mites because they don't walk on them very well. Uh, one thing that's really nice about it, no, I'm sorry, this doesn't walk. That was supposed to, I'm sorry. My slides say it's <laughs> only mite that walks well on tomatoes. No, it's, it's a mite that doesn't walk well on tomatoes. <laughs> I made that mistake, I'm sorry. It does, I, I don't believe it walks well. Um, it's supposed to be better than Swarovski and some of the other ones because it's a little larger, but it's still limited and it's not very effective. Uh, one thing that is really nice about Andersoni though, it, it is a hotter, it does tolerate hotter climates. So I was talking about earlier, if we had a greenhouse um, where we're hitting 100 plus every day in that house and we're trying to control mites like two-spotted spider mite, uh, if we're going, I think the uh, persimilis up in the upper 90s somewhere starts to really slow down. It's not, it doesn't reproduce as quickly while the andersoni will. But the problem is the andersoni is not as hungry either. So it doesn't feed as well as the, as the persimilis will. The persimilis will eat way more two-spotted spider mite than Andersoni ever will. So these are just little tricks that you, you, know, you have to consider and things you have to consider when you're releasing these bios and selecting them. Uh, I talked about spider mites. There are all, all kinds of varieties of spider mites here. And uh, this, uh, this thing kind of sort of cuts out a little bit. But up here on the top three, they're only they're somewhat half cut out. But those are the main two-spotted spider mites you'll find. But all these other mites that you see here and I forget, there's 30 or 40. There's a whole bunch of varieties of mites. There's just a whole bunch. But these organisms will, or I'm sorry, these bios will consume almost all of them. Egg, and, egg adult, and larvae. So I have spider mites occasionally. And I have no idea what kind of spider mites they are. It, maybe they are the two-spotted. It's most likely the two-spotted. But the issue is it almost doesn't really matter. You, if you release a biological a bios that consumes and feeds on mites, it's going to most likely eat that mite uh, without knowing what it is. And if it doesn't eat the mite, it will oftentimes at least eat the egg, so it arrests that reproduction cycle. So you keep that adult and you try to prevent the next generation from coming up. And because these organisms, they just live for a few weeks, yeah, again, this doesn't cure everything right away. It might take a month or two before you see this. In my experiment, experience, like with strawberries that were heavily infested with a two-spotted spider mite, and when I introduced um, uh, persimilis, it took, took almost a month to just totally get rid of the problem. It got to a point where the spiders, I'm sorry, the, uh, the strawberries were completely covered in uh, persimilis. There was just so much persimilis running around. And if you ever watch it, these guys hustle. They just run all over that plant. And they look for a spider mite, and once they find it, they eat it. That's why they consume so much, because they burn so much energy. They, they're moved. They don't sit still. You just watch them, and you can see them running, these little orange dots. They kind of look like this right here, like a M, the M square here. They look something like that's what persimilis. I'll show you a picture in just a minute. And uh, they really hustle. They just scoot. 
and they find something, they eat it, and then they keep going. But they have a very high metabolism and they consume a lot faster. So Persimilis is definitely, it's the poster child of IPM because it's the silver bullet. It's that example where you bring this one organism in and you've got just this horrible problem, right? And then bam, it just knocks it out after a few weeks. That's Persimilis on two-spotted spider mite, especially on strawberries. And that's what it is used for the most, strawberries and cukes. Um, okay, yeah, so I was going to talk a little bit about spider mite life cycle. It's just, obviously, it's a life, uh, it's a mite. Um, let's see, they feed uh, mostly on the underside of the leaf. They penetrate the cells, bursting the cells. You'll start to see this yellow spotting on your leaves, and then eventually that yellow, uh, it'll just be spotting. The whole leaf will go yellow eventually. And then if you, know, if you don't manage that problem, the whole crop goes yellow. So I've seen people that don't realize this is a mite problem. They think it's a nutritional problem or maybe too much heat or fertilizer burn or something. And it's actually not. It's a spider mite problem. So the key thing to seeing whether, okay, do I have a nutritional problem or do I have a mite problem? And you think it might be spider mites because sometimes they don't, you know, you, you got to see them with a the lens so you don't, oftentimes see them with the naked eye, is to look for uh, spider webs. If you see a lot of webbing, real fine, real fine thin webbing that you, it traps, pretty good at trapping dust, uh, then you know it's most likely a mite problem. And it's not a nutritional problem or uh, some other type of stress or a disease. Uh, let's see here. So the life cycle of these guys is five to 40 days. And um, they're laying eggs at seven days. Within a week of being born, they're laying eggs. They reproduce insanely fast. They don't beat the aphid, but they are fast. Uh, here's a life cycle of uh, Tetranicus is what it's called. Uh, all these different mites, they fall, in, they fall into the Tetranicus genus. So from the egg to the larvae, it's about seven days. From larvae to uh, protonymph, uh, and then back up over to deuteronymph, and then to adult. I believe it was, oh, I'm sorry, it's actually seven days from the egg all the way to the adult. It's very quick. From egg to larvae, actually from being born up to a larvae is like, I don't even think it's a day. They do it so fast. It's quickly. This is, I think, from larvae to protonymph, it's about a couple of days, and then a, three or four days from uh, protonymph to deuteronymph, and then another couple of days from deuteronymph to adult, if I remember it correctly, but it's, it's quick, it's fast. I mean, you could just be gone for one week and come out and your whole greenhouse is just taken over by spider mites. It is so fast how they reproduce. Uh, let's see, here's Amblyssius californicus. So this is a, a very, uh, this actually was called californicus. I wanted to talk about because we are in California. <laughs> so Amblyssius californicus was naturally, it was found or let's see, I think it was in the central coastal regions of California, if I remember correctly. But it was specifically found here, but now it's available over the market, it's all over the place now. Uh, and it's for controlling two-spotted spider mites, broad mites, uh, and thrips as well. Consumes 5.3 spider mite eggs per day. These guys feed mostly on the eggs, but they will feed on the nymphs and, and deuteronymphs as well, but mostly on the eggs. And they're eating 5.3 5 on average eggs per day. A Californicus is another really good one for uh, con uh, preventative control of spider mites because they eat the eggs and because they actually, uh, let's see, they are, where's I go? okay. Well, I didn't write that up there on the slides, I'm sorry. Okay, they're good preventative because they, one, they consume the eggs 
and two, they don't really reproduce as quickly as Persimilis or some of the other ones, but they live longer. And they can feed on a larger variety of different, of different organisms. So they're pretty, they're pretty tough. And then, but uh, they don't really handle, I don't think they handle the real hot, hot heat being that they were originally from the coastal regions of California. They can only go up about, I think it was in the ideal temperatures are in the 70s or something like that. If you start getting into the 80s and 90s, I know they really slow down. So if you're trying to put these in a greenhouse that's 90 something degrees or 100, over 100 degrees, they're not as prolific. They won't go as quickly. Um, and obviously if you have a real heavy infestation, because they're not real heavy feeders, they're, it's not really a good idea to use Californicus for, um, for treatment. Okay, so here's Phytocilius persimilis. Here's a picture of Phytocilius persimilis up on top consuming an adult two-spotted spider mite. And this, like I said, is definitely the silver bullet of IPM. These guys eat, on average, it's 40. They could eat as much as 80-something mites in a day, but average is more like 40. Uh, you could see them. Um, this is, uh, again, two-spotted spider mite in the picture in the bottom. You see these are the adults and these are the eggs. And this is the, this is the, uh, the mite in the adult stage on top. So most of your predatory organisms are going to be larger than what they are um, hunting. But that's not always the case. With Persimilis, they are about the same size as an adult. For adult to adult, they're about the same size as two-spotted spider mite. I think they're just a little bit larger. Um, My question is, is, if I release them, I mean, will I be able to tell? On you will be able to see them. You can tell which one's good and which one's bad based off of the coloring of the mite. Okay. But if you really want to identify for sure what mite you have on your plant, you're going to need a lens and you're going to need to look for it and identify it that way. It's not, it's not, you can't do that with the naked eye. Okay, looks like I am. Sorry, I didn't hook up my battery charger now. My laptop's about to die. Let's get this hooked up. It likes a little bit cooler, but it can tolerate hot. Okay, sorry, I didn't put that in here. Likes 20 degrees Celsius is the best temperature it likes. But questions on exactly, you know, so that's another thing. You guys are taking notes, and that's great, but um, these technical sheets you can get from a lot of your bio suppliers, they have a lot of information in there. So when you, have, when you identify a certain problem in your crop and you're trying to apply a particular uh, biological in it, it's always my recommendation that you get the literature on it. And you, it's out there. Read it, learn about them, and then you can decide for yourself, is this really the best thing for what I'm trying to do right now? Um, and, and the time of the year. So, yeah, so I picked this up and just looking at it, I, I had a question here, but... Uh, the eggs on Phytocilius persimilis will shrivel up and die at temperatures greater than 86 degrees. So what does that do to our reproductive capacity of persimilis in the middle of summer? It's probably not going to go, right? 
You can release the guys, buy them in high numbers, and just throw them out there, and whatever survives, survives, if you really got a problem. But something to keep in mind that your reproduction rates are going to be pretty low. You don't use those in the spring and fall, though. You use them in the spring and fall all you want. Use them in the summertime in greenhouses. They'll do great. But when it gets real hot, they're not that tolerant to it. And I think this organism was originally found and identified, which is where the whole IPM program was started because of Phytocilius persimilis, and it was identified in uh, the Netherlands, I believe. So it's that kind of a climate that it was adapted to, which is a lot more, what is that, kind of more like a Pacific Northwest climate if we wanted to compare it with the US. So cold, dreary, rainy, overcasty, that's the kind of climate it originated in. So we bring it down here to this heat, and it doesn't really survive. It doesn't do so well. So here's another one, a fit of ladies at a, at a fit of Misa. I think I have gotten, at this point, I am, uh, yes, all right. So now we're getting into the aphid predators. Okay. This guy is a, uh, feeds on aphids and then it pupates in the soil. This is a really good, uh, again, preventative I, uh, organism. This one I would, I would not use for uh, treatment, but uh, it, the adult, well, or, uh, I'm sorry, the adult uh, forms of aphidolates, uh, aphidomyza will feed on mostly the larval stages of the aphids, but they're not, they're not real heavy feeders. So this is something that is just nice to release and have in your garden or your farm. But don't expect miracles from it. It's just, you know, it's just a little jab for aphids. And with aphids, to really deal with aphids, you got to hit them with multiple different things. And this is nothing more than just a jab, really. It will consume some aphids, but it's not going to fix any aphid infestation problem you have. But it's great to have it on the team, for sure. Uh, here's the life cycle of uh, an aphid. I mentioned earlier that aphids not only are they born pregnant, but they reproduce ridiculously quickly. You have to get ahead of this if you're going to control aphids in your production system. There is no way that you can do it without using chemicals if you don't understand the life cycle and if you don't make the applications at the right time to manage this. So if we look at aphids, we have both the sexual and the asexual reproduction cycle. The sexual reproduction cycle, which is on the right, is a male and a female come together, they form an egg, which typically overwinters in the soil somewhere. Once spring comes or the ground thaws, that egg, which overwintered, will hatch. You'll have your first instar, your second instar, your third instar, and then finally your fourth instar. So aphidolates would really only feed on first through third. It would never really bother the fourth or the wing type or the wingless type, adult. If this is spring, early spring, and we're at the fourth instar, and there's plenty of food, it won't develop wings. It'll go to the wingless female, which will give live birth, and continue to reproduce. Just insane. This process just starts, they and this... They give live birth? They give live birth to... Organi to other fem uh, females, and they tend to produce, actually, that's another thing, the uh, wingless female aphid, not only does it give live birth, but two out of every three aphids born are female. And that's just a rough number, it's really like 1.9 or something like that, but whatever. 
uh, it's pretty much two out of every three are female. So if it gives birth to three aphids, two of them are going to reproduce at the same rate that it just did. The other one will be a male. <laughs> oh. Then this process starts all over again. And this whole process takes uh, four to ten days for it to reach sexual maturity. So if this wingless, this one aphid that was born reached sexual maturity, is wingless, it has plenty of resources to survive, it's going to start giving birth at four to ten days from the day it hatched. That's how quickly that is. And then these that came, these that were born, were born alive. They're not eggs, they're born alive. And they're consuming as soon as they're born. And they're pregnant. And within five days, they're laying their next clutch. So when you flip a leaf over and it has just piles of aphids all together, and you yes. see there's different sizes. You'll see different sizes, yes. So the little ones are the baby ones. They're the, they're the, they're the instars, the smaller instars, right? So it's born, it goes to the first instar already when it was born. It's not even in an egg. The eggs are from the sexual reproductive cycle, which will usually overwinter in the soil somewhere. So these folks will just reproduce so quickly that in order to stay on top of them, you've got to have multiple feeders out there. You cannot just try to treat them with just one particular thing, like a, one parasitic wasp. And then there are different types of aphids too. So uh, certain par parasitic wasps, I'll get into it a little bit later, won't feed on them. So you've got to make sure you've got the right ones. And in my opinion, get both. Why even bother? Why bother identifying it? Just put both of them out there. Chances are, if you've got, say, 99... So if you've got a, several billion of these guys out there, there might be several thousand that are the one that you didn't identify. Why let those get out of control? Sometimes that happens. People will release the bios and say, oh, well, we got the potato aphids under control, but now we've got the melon aphids going crazy. Well, you should have released the other bio too, the other parasitic wasp ahead of time. Just don't even waste, don't even waste your time identifying them. If you've got aphids, just hit them with everything you've got. <laughs> don't waste time, especially if you're a short season grower. Yeah, so with aphids, they, they are ants that will uh, work and will form these symbiotic relationships with the aphids because what they do is they come in during this asexual reproduction cycle and the ants will pick up these instars and take them to where they want them and then they'll infest the plant there and start feeding there. And the aphids have these long uh, piercing, sucking mouth parts like a big straw they can just penetrate the leaf surface with. The ants don't have that. But then when they penetrate that leaf circuit, uh, surface, the phloem or the sugar comes out of that leaf, then the ants will come and eat that. So they're working in unison with the, uh, with the uh, what do you call it, the aphids. So when you're dealing with ants, you want to actually try to not only release your bios for the aphids, which is interesting because also one of the things they've studied, what some studies have shown is that, the, uh, that some of those ants that, that work with the aphids will actually harm or consume some of your beneficial bios. Particularly, I think it was, a, yes, they'll actually try to kill them and get them out of there to protect the aphids. So the ants will actually start attacking the mites that are feeding on the aphids. So you have to also attack the ants. So you got to deal with the ant problem and the aphid problem, because when you have the aphid and the ants, you got two problems, and you got to take care of both, and you got to hit them both differently. With the ants, you want to go uh, with, the, with the different ant killers that are, uh, I think they're mostly boron-based. That'll knock down the ants, and then you got to go with the bios, or maybe if it's too bad, then you got to go with the sprays. 
Uh, here's a picture of Aphidias uh, colomani, and this one will feed, so this one works best on melon aphids, right? And I don't really like potato aphids. And these are all parasitoids. So they come in, they use the, the, very, the stinger, the back part of the wasp, to put their egg into the aphid, uh, parasitizing it. Okay. I'm running out of time here, so I'm going to rush through some of these slides here. Yes, you can buy these wasps. So, um, well, Aphidias colomani is what you'd find it when you start looking for the bile, you're looking for colomani. But this is for um, the melon aphids. So these are the aphids you'll see on your cukes, on your watermelons, um, and on your squash. And then we have Aphidias ervi, which works best on your potato aphids. And these aphids can be a green or a pinkish red color. So the one, quite, one thing I mentioned with the, with the uh, melon aphids, they tend to have either totally black or they have these two black spots on the back, abdomen. With potato aphids, they're either all green or they have this like pinkish red color to them. All right, so that's just, that's the only way they really identify them. And then uh, Phidias ervi is what you want to use for that one. This one works best for that one. And they do not, again, this one's not very effective on melon aphids. They don't particularly like them, so they're, they're kind of picky on what aphids they eat. Uh, here we have now one of the most popular ones. This is probably the, really the, the best um, biocontrol against aphids. It's going to be uh, Delia da Punctata, which is ladybugs. ladybugs. Yeah, so here's the life cycle of a ladybug. So there's the adult. The adults um, have the characteristic where they, once they reach adulthood, they want to fly somewhere, usually at least a mile away, to lay their eggs out there. So when you're purchasing adult lady beetles, you got to understand they don't, it's not really a scam, but don't expect them to feed a whole lot on your farm or in your garden. Sure. They're not going to really want to. They're going to want to fly away and go somewhere else. So uh, if you've ever bought these organisms and then you release them or ladybugs and you release them in your farm and then they just, where do they go? They're all gone. That's what they instinctively want to do. They want to fly away. They'll breed. They'll mate with another, you know, with each other. And then um, the females will go find someplace far away to lay their eggs. They don't want to lay their eggs on your farm, which is why buying adult lady beetles is really not worth the trouble. If you have an infestation, it's definitely not what you want to do if you're using them as a treatment. Because I can assure you, it's not going to give you the results you're looking for. You want to buy the larva or the eggs. You can buy larva, you can buy eggs. But if you're trying to use them as a treatment, larva and eggs is what you want because they're not going anywhere until they become adults. Which is how long? Uh, uh, for it's about three weeks. So they'll feed for about three weeks before they fly away. And if they're trapped in your greenhouse? Uh, they'll, they'll find a way out. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they're not going to stay in there. They'll find a way. Trust me, that greenhouse is not as impenetrable as you believe. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> and uh, yes, they don't do this. So Okay, so let's say we got the egg now. So we've laid eggs somewhere, or you put the eggs there. Uh, you end up with your first instar. After first instar, lady beetles will eat about four aphids a day. And then at the second instar, they'll eat about 13 aphids a day. At the third instar, they'll eat about 35. At the fourth, they'll go all the way up to 56. And when you see the fourth and the third on your crop eating aphids, it's like, wow, it's awesome. It is, it's impressive. 
I mean, to see these guys just going through, I mean, they're like little T-Rexes. They're just running around, just tearing everything up. They eat so much so fast. It, it's extremely impressive. And then they pupate, right? Which they don't eat anything at that point. Then they become adults. Then they might feed a little bit before they leave, but they don't feed a whole lot. Maybe <coughs> 200 or so aphids before they stick off. I'm sorry? Neem oil hurt those things. Neem oils and a lot of other chemicals will hurt lady beetles, yes. At the larvae, at the adults. Uh, Spinosad would definitely kill adults, for sure. Um, I think, yeah, it'll even kill the, all the instars because they are beetles. So anything that'll kill, uh, like a Colorado potato beetle or uh, uh, cucumber beetles or uh, what's the other big beetle there? Um, squash, all the different squash and, uh, and stink bugs are going to kill ladybugs as well. So if you're going to spray that, you got to realize you're going to interrupt this process. However, once they fly away, I like, I know where, when I was in Western Mass, a lot of the farmers would just buy the adults because they were cheap. They didn't cost anything. They said, look, I guess the kind of was like an informal agreement amongst a lot of the farmers, just buy lady beetles, right? If I buy them and they fly off of my farm to your farm, you know, then they benefit you, right? And then, you know, so the people, oh, I'll buy them and then they'll fly wherever and then they'd fly into where we were. So we got a whole bunch that just came in from I don't know where, but somebody paid for them because we had a field infested was aphids just everywhere and i had a whole bunch of watermelon planted and um and a squash butternut squash and winter squash and we had i think it was was it five acres total something like that of squash and watermelons and they just had so many aphids i didn't know what to do um two or three weeks later i saw a whole bunch of these guys the fourth and third instar lady beetles and I saw Colomani out there, and I saw Searford flies out there, larvae, and they were all feeding on them. And I said, whoa, cool, about a month later, problem gone. The, I mean, the aphids were totally gone. You had to really look for aphids. You couldn't find them. These were all the melon aphids, too. Oh, I was very impressed with how that worked. Uh, of course, a lot of those bios were bios that had returned from previous generations, right? So if, if we had let them go, say, in 2015, well, all of a sudden, they're back in 2000, what was that, 18? They were back in 2018. They flew to somebody else's farm, and then they maybe flew to somebody else's and whatever, and then eventually they came back to ours. You know, so that's the other thing why I say it's not really a scam if you buy the lady beetles. If, you don't, if you've got the money... And you're just like, hey, you know what? I want them in my neighborhood. And fine, release them. They'll go for somewhere, and eventually they'll come back. Hopefully, anyway, unless you live really way out in the middle of nowhere in a very difficult climate, but they will come back. So, um, all right. Now we get into the last couple here. I got, I got to really rush through these, but Styanermia, these are the aphids. I t I'm sorry, the uh, um, nematodes I spoke about. So uh, you can buy, and of course, these are everything I'm presenting to you is something you can buy. It's commercially available for growers, and it's also commercially available for you know people that are gardening. You can buy them in small quantities or large quantities. Uh, these guys, uh, Styanermia, purchased tend to come in a gel formation, and it's best to take that gel formation, put it in some kind of mixing tank of water and then water it onto your garden because what will happen is all these little nematodes will dissolve in that gel and they'll be floating in your water and then you apply that either to the leaf surface or to the soil depending on what you're trying to treat. So all that is also in the literature that you can ask uh, the supplier for. 
those things are tiny, very tiny. Uh, like in this picture you see right here, that thing is not even a millimeter long. They are tiny, very tiny. Um, so what they'll do is they'll infect the juvenile host. This is uh, filetae, Styanermia filetae. They'll infect the juvenile host at the pupating stages and they will eventually release bacteria that will kill the organisms. Once the organism dies and they leave a bunch of eggs inside that blows up or they break, the, they, eat, they eat the carcass and then they come out into the soil looking for something else to eat. And that's the life cycle of, uh, of uh, these nematodes. And of course, they actually, the lethal part is the bacteria that they excrete. There's a certain bacteria that they have in their guts, if you will, that they let out. And that's what kills the organisms that they're targeting, which is various different, they, there's various different types depending on which one you want. And, yeah, so thrips will, where are, there you go. Yeah, so this one will control thrips. Um, it's what it's marketed for, but I think it does more than thrips. And the way it, with thrips, they you lay the eggs, they feed, then they go back into the soil, right, to pupate. And these particular uh, uh, nematodes will attack them while they're pupating in the soil. So this is a nematode, like, like a worm, I guess. If <laughs> really, really tiny worm. No, the nematode releases the bacteria. The bacteria is what actually kills the organism. And then the nematode feeds on the organism. Reproduces and then releases more. Uh, there's another one, hetero... Sometimes I forget how to pronounce these. Hetero... Hebditis, bacteria to 40, which is the same thing. Contains an insect-killing symbiotic bacteria. Uh, similar to Styanermia filtae. However, this one is for killing uh, grubs and other beetles. Um, what were they? It was beetles and grubs, I think is what they'd go after. There was another one. I can't remember what it was. I think it was. No, I didn't put it in there. It was in here somewhere. Weevil larvae, that's what it was. And then there's Styanermia crusae, which works similarly to Styanermia filtae, used for control of beetles and weevils as well. Uh oh, okay. Um, the larvae that overwinter, yes. But I've never actually tried to use them to effectively control squash bugs. And because squash bugs can just fly in, it doesn't mean that you'll get rid of the problem. It just means that you'll probably remove a lot of what's there on your garden or your farm. But it doesn't mean your neighbor's squash bugs won't wake up and come over and attack yours. <laughs> so unfortunately, that doesn't really solve the problem. But it helps to eliminate what's there, which is great. OK, so here's some shared resources. Now, I. Honestly, I don't even think I scratched the surface. I just barely started talking about IPM. There's so much more that could be said, and there's so much more information out there. I encourage you to continue to seek that information, educate yourself. Every time that you have a problem, look at it as God's invitation for you to learn. Now, seek answers and results. <laughs> they are Sometimes that's the most frustrating part, but if we will view these issues, these pests and these organisms that come into our farms and our, and our gardens as God's uh, opportunity, our lessons that he wants us to teach us, uh, 
then suddenly it's not quite as difficult to, uh, or anyway, you're not as discouraged when it's time to go looking for results. The results are out there. The results are out there. The only difference between a very educated farmer and a not-so-educated farmer, in my opinion, is experience. <laughs> because experience is what really teaches you. As these problems come up, um, you seek solutions. And somebody earlier at the last hour had asked about, well, what books do you read or where do you go to find it? It's like, uh-uh, God doesn't teach through books except the Bible. He teaches through experience, through struggles, through perseverance, um, overcoming the challenges that Satan's going to throw at us, that he allows Satan to hit us with, and that's how we end up finding these results. So keep looking for the information. Uh, there's tons of information out there for any organism you want to find. Uh, and especially all the ones that are sold commercially. So whatever pest problems you have, start asking the right people for the right questions and you'll get the right answers. I encourage you not to give up, keep it up, and may the Lord be with you. Here's some websites, uh, our Arbuckle Organics uh, sells to the small growers specifically. BioBest and Copart. BioBest is actually one word, I, that, that space shouldn't be there. And then there's Copert, which is K-O-P-P-E-R-T. That's another provider, Greenhouse Griff, uh, Griffin Greenhouse Supplies, is somebody that just started selling bios as well. There's a company out in uh, Canada, if you're Canadian, uh, Crop Defenders out of Leamington. BioBest American offices are in uh, Michigan. Um, Copert, I forget where they were at, but they're, they got offices in the U.S. And then Griffin's is out of the East Coast mostly. And then there's other sources online, tons of sources online. Uh, I, I couldn't even tell you, there's just so many. For, not just for information, but to purchase bios. My advice is buy them from reputable companies because some of them will sell you things that are pretty much dead and they don't do anything, especially if you're a home gardener. Be very, be, try to be very vigilant of who you're buying your bios from because some of the stuff that's going out to the home growers is just things that, you know, didn't, maybe the plane was delayed somewhere or a truck broke down or something. I don't know. And the organisms are mostly dead. And they just say, well, what do we do with this? You know, it's uh, $10,000 worth of whatever. And uh, they end up getting pushed through other channels. And then somehow they end up in a home gardener somewhere who will come back and swear that he, they tried something and nothing happened. So I encourage you to try to get them from reputable sources. All right, I'll open the floor to questions. Oh, well, just important points. Uh, Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I had still had one more slide, which, uh, well, there we go. I'll leave it with that. Okay, um, go I ahead. Just to say, uh, if you have a large area, if you have some gardens in, because we have, we have a campus and we have several different gardens, what would be some good things that you could just get to let go Um, okay, I think the question is very generalized. What could you release or purchase or apply yeah. as a preventative to gardens that you have throughout campus? It doesn't bring um, well, <laughs> when it comes to sprays and chemicals and things of that nature, especially for small gardens. Oh, you're thinking bios, okay. Well, with the sprays and, uh, and all the other stuff, I don't think it's worth really keeping anything on hand if you're not an actual grower. 
until you start knowing what your problems are. With IPM, again, it's very similar. You can release lady beetles and they're gonna benefit the community in some way or another. They're cheap, inexpensive, let them go, eventually they'll come back. If, if there's aphids around or something for them to eat, they'll come back. Uh, so that would be lady beetles as far as releasing out into the environment. What about the wasps? Uh, wasps, you can release the wasps too. Um, but it just, it really, it's a difficult question to answer because everywhere you go is different, extremely different. And you may just be drops of water in a a big, big bucket of water for all you know because if all your neighbors are already releasing organisms there's nothing you can really do it's already there uh, so unless you're somewhere where you really doubt that you have these beneficial organisms out in the environment then it's not really in my opinion worth releasing for no particular reason at all unless you suspect you might have certain issues with certain pests with the suspicion it'd be good enough to just start releasing pre uh, preventative amounts or amounts that would be preventative for whatever organism you're trying to hit, target. Uh, next question. Uh, back to my leaf curl plumethid problem. Is there one of the aphid predators that could be released at, at the bud swell so that they can be a preventative solution? Because the, the leaf curl plumethid uh, you know, attacks, as soon as the bud opens and starts to leaf out, then the, somehow the cycle there, the eggs hatch, and we'll jump into the newly forming leaves. And once they, once they get in there, you can't do anything because the leaf curls and they're protected. Oh, okay. Lady beetles can't keep up with them. They, they're too much. Okay, so you're having aphids that are arriving right at the point of flowering. I think, I think they're already there. On your peach form. orchard. But yeah, in the plum orchard. S or so plum orchard. Okay, so, so what I would burst. guess is is that uh, the timing, environmental timing for the hatching of the eggs of the aphid, as yeah. well as for flowering of the plums, plums, is is they're synchronized, they're real close. So what my recommendation would be probably something as simple as spraying a product called Impede that'll knock down your aphids, just because it's a it's a knockdown spray. Uh, that was the same one I'd recommend last hour. It's a potassium salts of fatty acid. That does, that does, that's been my best experience with sprays and aphids in organic production anyway, has been Impede. What was it called? Uh, Impede, I-M-P-E-D-E, -E, if I remember correctly. And the active ingredient is potassium salts of fatty acids. That product um, would knock down aphids at that, at that point, And then uh, immediately after that, start releasing, um, well, you, you could, release I don't know I have to look at the aphid you have but you could release Irvi and well I would at least release surfid flies I didn't put them in there oh, man I didn't talk about surfid flies okay I forgot um, you could release surfid flies uh, and uh, the uh, aphidius colomani or Irvi aphidius Irvi or aphidius colomani and um, maybe some some uh, lady beetles as well but uh, I think the lady beetles work best on vegetable crops and flower crops and not so much orchards because it's such a big area to go from flower to flower. They won't, they won't travel from one to the other, yeah. right? While uh, parasitic wasps like a, a Phidias colomani and a Phidias irvi will fly from flower to flower as necessary, um, parasitizing different aphid colonies, all right? And once those, once those, those eggs hatch or those, or they, I'm sorry, they come out, then uh, they'll just keep, keep that cycle going. But in your particular case where you're saying that 
they're arriving right as they flower, right as your trees flower, your orchard flowers, that's a tough one. I don't know how you can handle it except through sprays. I think bios would only benefit you if you know where those aphids are coming from. But I can assure you they weren't in the flower. They came from somewhere. Right. And most likely it's the soil in the ground. So putting some nematodes into that ground, seeing what that might do would be a probably a good idea as well. Uh, just purchase a few nematodes depending on the acreage of your orchard and watering that into the soil and seeing what you might control that way. That might be a better long-term solution. Um, but we don't know. I don't know where these aphids are coming from. If you can figure out where those aphids are coming from, then you can really solve the problem, but I assure you they're, they're, they're not part of the budding of the flower. <laughs> okay, I was just wondering, you know, when you talk about if your neighbors have released any or they'll go to your neighbors, I mean, what is the radius of something like that? I mean, how far will your ladybugs go? And if there's nobody else around, you know, within how many miles, then you're pretty much on your own. I, so how many miles will lady beetles and other beetles fly, you know, beneficials or or uh, non-beneficial insects. Uh, that's information that I don't totally know, but I know lady beetles will go about as far as 10 miles, I think. Um, and um, some of those other pests will go real far too. And then it also depends, you see these guys, they'll fly up and then we don't even know what wind currents are up in the air. So I don't know what their terrain is. If you're in a flat part like, in, I don't know, Oklahoma, Texas or something, where are you from? Are you, you're, oh, you're North, from Texas. Northeast Texas. Northeast Texas. Texas, okay. Yeah, so uh, you're out there. I mean, them bugs get up in the air and them wind currents, they can take them miles and miles and miles and miles. I mean, they could be coming in from Kansas for all you know. Okay. Uh, they could be coming in far when you have that kind of wind currents out there. While in other areas with a lot of canyons and cliffs and things, they may not be traveling as far less wind. So, yeah, the distance is far. So they could, beneficials and Non-beneficials could be coming in from, if you're in Texas, they could be coming from anywhere. Okay. Long distances. Um, I think he was first, and I'll answer his. And okay. Um, in our parts, they have the uh, Japanese ladybug that was released. Uh-huh. And they're everywhere now. Now, are those specific for the uh, one kind of aphid, or are they all the kinds of aphids? Japanese ladybugs. Actually, from what I understand, actually, I don't really know that much about the Japanese ladybug, but I'm pretty sure it was just for all aphids. I don't believe that the Japanese lady beetle was specialized for just one particular type of aphid. But again, I could be wrong. I mean, a quick Google search will answer that question. Okay. Well, I, I, I have not heard anything about yellow ladybugs not being good. Um, what was your question? In the, when, when you're laying out your, your greenhouse and, and gardens and whatever, um, do you plan for some beneficial habitat for those predators so that you, they continue even as the population drops of the uh, target species? Like some of them are pollen feeders. And, and so, do you, would it be worthwhile to plan to provide some kind of habitat to uh, uh, keep them happy in your space? You're referring to plant. So, your question is: Is is it worthwhile planning a habitat to keep to, to harbor your beneficials. to harbor your beneficials? So, your beneficials tend to want to feed on the pest. Yeah. So, the only thing is either pest or something pest-like. Uh, which, I mean, uh, you don't want to be bringing aphids into your no. garden. <laughs> just no, they could have, or some other type of pest. So it wouldn't. 
some of you, uh, you pointed out, were also pollinators. Yeah, so some of them are, right? Um, and since we're kind of looking and at they, preventative, yeah. if we had... What would be my recommendation is to have something on the farm. So you know, different types of shrubs and bushes that flower uh -huh. and keep uh, pollinators around, which you really want, but also you know, other, other beneficial insects. Uh, yes, they do have it for that. But in, specifically in your greenhouse, most people would say no, because uh, that's square footage you could use to grow you know, in a greenhouse. But in your farm, you know, overall, yes, you want to have rows of shrubs and other beneficial flowering, flowering plants that's going to not only attract pollinators, but attract a benefit, other beneficial insects as well would be definitely, definitely, there's a lot of people doing that. Um, so if I know that I'm going to have trouble with this and this and this, because I do every year, if I call one of these uh, companies and I say, this is the pest I'm trying to, to deal with, will they, are they helpful? Will they tell me? Yes. So all these main companies, they have uh, sales representatives and they have them assigned to different regions. And if you call them up in their main office, they're going to tell you, call this guy or gal. That's your sales rep for wherever you are. So, so then when you call that sales rep, they're familiar with where you are, the pests you are, and they're probably selling to somebody else in the area. So a lot of the times when we would get word that certain, you know, like <clears throat> I remember we had there was a white fly infestation in a farm 30, 40 miles away or something like that. And they were telling us about it. They said, hey, such and such a farm got white flies. You guys need to be scouting for white flies. Uh, you know, that's, that's what a good uh, rep, uh, rep bios rep would do, and uh, not just sell you bios. A good rep is not just going to want to sell you bios. They're going to inform you of what's going on in your neighborhood. They want to educate you so that you can make good decisions. Uh, we went with BioBest. We had Copart. Both of them were excellent. But there are others out there, too. Um, the, only, the only sad part about it is, however, the one, one thing I will say is that they are very focused on... Uh, the size of your production. If you're very small and you're just you're not buying hardly anything from them, then you know, kind of go to the wayside. They don't give you quite as much attention as maybe you'd like, but they'll still answer emails and maybe call you back every once in a while. They're not going to just they, they shouldn't anyway. I've, it's not been my experience that they would just totally ignore you, okay. unless you never buy anything from them at all. I think doing companion planting with the purpose of attracting aphids is something that would be ideal uh, in outdoor production where you would have certain areas you say, well, look, I want to put this, this here, I'm putting it as a trap. You don't want to do too much because then you'll have too many, right? Uh, and then if you do do that, if you do put these plants out there with the purpose of targeting something like aphids, well, then you want to put mites and other pests and, you know, that feed on aphids, you want to introduce them at that point right instead of putting it on your crop though i would still want to put at least a little bit on the crop i would want to put it there because that's where they're going to favor and if and if there's an aphid flying around looking for a home then that's where you want them to land and that's where you want the predators to be at so both predator and prey are at this at that same spot i think we're getting towards the end here yeah it pretty much is but okay um So nematode specific specificity is not really that. 
it, they're pretty broad. Yeah. You know, they're, they're going to look for something. They're going to try to eat it. Um, but it tends to stick within certain types of, you know, pests. Like some of them might focus on grubs and beetles. Or others are, are wanting to feed on different organisms. They just use different mechanisms. So if there's something there where their mechanisms will, will work mm -hmm. to, to hunt, to kill, to eat, then they're going to try. You know, they're not going to just die. So one of the things that I'd say is because some of these vials are so cheap since they produce them, they mass yeah. produce them, if you think it might be because you see the similar uh, you know, uh, physical characteristics, then, then try, you know, try doing it. Give it a shot. See if it works for you. And if it does, awesome. Yeah. You know, sometimes it doesn't. I've done that too. I've had beetles that have come in. And I was like, I don't know what this is. I could never get anybody to tell me what this thing was. But I knew what it looked like and what similarities. And I knew, well, this is a beetle. So I treated it as a beetle, and I got rid of it. You know, so I got rid of the problem just by doing that. All right, I think we're all done here. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.